we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we're continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. We usually talk about science and medicine and COVID, say, but that is really only a starting point for the possible things that we can discuss. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Ryan Cole. Dr. Cole is a board-certified anatomic and clinical dermatopathologist and the medical director and CEO of his company, Cole Diagnostics, which is an independent full-service pathology laboratory. Dr. Cole received his medical training at the Medical College of Virginia and did pathology residency and fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. Over his career, he has evaluated hundreds of thousands of pathology specimens, and during COVID, it's played a major role and helping to understand some of the basic biology and pathology of the virus and of the mRNA vaccines. So, Ryan, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Uh, honestly, I've been thinking about recovering. Like <laughs> like uh, you and I were talking about, we've both been traveling quite a bit lately. So, uh, no, it's been interesting uh, being at different meetings around the world and meeting with colleagues and and just talking about each other's research and, and different areas, different data, different statistics, different patterns. The, the one that has interested me most recently is the discovery of uh, the DNA contamination in the injection vials and uh, trying to understand uh, what mechanisms uh, this contamination can have on all sorts of processes in the body and explaining some of the uh, adverse outcomes that we've seen in a lot of individuals. So I've been uh, following the work of Kevin McKernan. I've uh, had plenty of conversations with our colleague, Dr. David Weissman, uh, Jessica Rose, uh, many people that have been uh, looking at how how bad this contamination may be. So that, that's been the area of interest for the last uh, several weeks and, and understanding that, you know, there are more studies we obviously need to do. And then the, the next step is designing some additional um, laboratory probes. So now we can look at uh, whether or not these contaminated fragments, you know, short ones, long ones, medium-sized ones are intercalating into tumor cells, into um, potentially uh, bodies, uh, germline cells, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot we still need to learn at this point. Well, so let's go back. How did this DNA get into the vials in the first place? Ah, that's a great question. So when, when Moderna made their um, gene-based injections, they, they started out with uh, bacterial cultures and the whole construct was to take uh, the gene that makes the spike protein and in order to produce that in mass copy you have to do that um, either synthetically through a pcr type process or you grow billions of copies of it within a bacteria in a little circle called a plasmid and then that's the template and then off that template then the rna um, is made and then it's supposed to be purified 
and you should only end up with the synthetic RNA as the end product wrapped in the little fat bubbles, the lipid nanoparticles. Well, what happened is, it, so Moderna used uh, the bacterial process from the get-go. Now Pfizer, when they ran their trials, Pfizer did the synthetic process on their 40,000 test patients. And at the very end of the trial, they realized that they weren't going to be able to make as much uh, product. So they switched to the bacterial process. And they're supposed to use some enzymes at the end of that process to clean up any residual DNA. But evidently that uh, manufacturing process didn't go properly because um, multiple laboratories um, have now found that this uh, production DNA that shouldn't be there is there in, in excess quantities. So it was kind of a almost a bait and switch. Um, they did their trials on one process and at the end, uh, you know, 40,000 patients in the first synthetic process and they end about 250 patients on this new process. So there weren't enough to find any you know, potential harms or signals in a cohort that small. So that's, that's how the DNA ended up getting there is from the, the manufacturing process, not cleaning it up uh, appropriately. Now, if Moderna did it, presumably there's not as much DNA in the Moderna, Moderna vials because I haven't heard of people remarking about that so much compared to Pfizer. There is some, but it's, it's uh, significantly less. So their processes, obviously, in terms of doing the final cleaning, the final enzymes, the final clipping, Moderna appears to be cleaner. There's still some DNA in the Moderna um, vials. The, the concern is um, un under regulatory processes, there are a lot of different products on the market that will have trace DNA uh, in them. And the FDA allows up to, um, I think it's 10 micrograms of, of DNA in, in certain products. But there's nothing to compare it to because th that's usually what we call naked DNA. And that's usually broken down by the body. This, this is protected DNA. So it's actually wrapped in the lipid nanoparticles as well. And so technically there's, there's not even a regulatory guideline uh, for trace amounts of DNA, given this new uh, lipid nanoparticle process. So, you know, we're, we're really in unknown territory here in terms of having uh, residual DNA, but wrapped in these, in these fat packets as well. And now that DNA, I mean, that the aspect of this is it can get into your cells. And there's some sequences that weren't disclosed at first by Pfizer that um, come from a Chimpan or a monkey virus, simian virus number 40, an uh, African green monkey. And this, um, these sequences, the, the SV40 virus was what contaminated uh, polio vaccines uh, many years ago. And you would know better than I from the epidemiology standpoint, but there was an association with that virus and certain solid tumor type cancers uh, down the road later. And this, <clears throat> excuse me, and these viral fragments or these DNA fragments have sequences, a promoter sequence from this SV40 virus, as well as what we call a nuclear co-localization sequence, which helps you know, get into the, the nucleus even. So 
in retrospect, several agencies around the world said, oh, yeah, I guess we did have all those sequences. Um, and we just forgot to tell the public that we knew. Now, Canada, I guess their FDA went back and looked and said, oh, yeah, that sequence is there. But it's as though they didn't go go in and look at what these different sequences meant. If you if you you know look at the length of it, the, the 72 base pairs or the 300 and whatever base pairs, the regulators didn't say, gosh, this is a perfect match for this other virus, this simian virus. Well, but so, this is only a small part of the SV40. It's not the whole thing. Yeah. So we wouldn't yes. be expected to cause the same kind of cancers that occurred from the polio vaccines necessarily. Technically, no. The, the concern is the promoter region, the, uh, the, the 70 two base pair, it will bind to a tumor suppressor gene, the P53 gene. And then P53 is a family of tumor suppressor genes that we have that um, basically keep cancer from developing. But this, uh, there's a portion that um, is in these that will bind to that tumor suppressor uh, family of genes. And if you saturate that too much, you can lose uh, tumor surveillance ability of the cell. So we don't know for sure at this point, obviously. And that's one of the studies um, I, I want to do down the road here with uh, several other laboratories is to see if we can find and identify that promoter um, by you know certain laboratory techniques, fluorescence, uh, in situ hybridization techniques to see if it's uh, within uh, tumor cells and, and bound to that P53 uh, region. Uh, there are papers uh, that, that show it does bind to that. And so, yeah, you're right. It's not the whole virus. That's good news. And I can't say that it's causing cancer. It's just one more thing that has to be researched and looked at. Well, something else seems to be causing cancer um, that you've commented on, and that was a topic that I wanted to uh, ask about, uh, you know, if not now, then then later on in our conversation. <clears throat> um, my concern about the, the bait and switch, as you put it, on the, on the Pfizer vaccine is that it, it seems intentional for them not to find uh, any problems this way by having such a small number of subjects who were given the, the vaccine with the new process, the bacterial process rather than the PCR manufacturing process. And we don't know yet, do we, if, whether the FDA knew that the whole, the large scale rollout was going to be the bacterial process, whether they knew uh, that there were these sequences in the, this DNA in them, what the sequences were and why they were there. It sounds like they they did know in terms of a, a FOIA letter, a couple of letters that went back and forth from a colleague with the FDA. But their response is, well, you know, we gave over a billion doses and it's safe and effective. That was that was their answer. Um, the the um, Australian authorities knew, the Canadian authorities knew, the European Medicine Agency knew. And it sounds like our FDA knew as well. So unfortunately, it sounds like there was some regulatory um, cover up in terms of they knew that the process had changed, but they allowed the authorizations anyway. Well, but they had no safety information on the new process. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 250 patients, as, as you know, that is a very small cohort in terms of finding signals of. Uh, this is something that, that I've, I've argued multiple times which is that public health safety efficiency has to be 
like bridge safety that if you if you were to build a bridge and it was 99.99% safe you'd think as an engineer that was wonderful that was exquisitely safe but on the other hand if 100,000 cars are driving over it every day that means 10 cars go into the water every day day in day out you know 3600 car people die from from going into the water every year and so you would never think that was safe and the public wouldn't think would think this is uh, a death bridge, even though if they had some reason to drive across, they would do it because one in you know in ten thousand is is a small risk on a on a one off. So it's easy to to take both points of view, both contradictory points of view, and defend them. And if you're only testing two hundred fifty people, you cannot find it, something that's one in a thousand. One in a thousand would be horrible. If you have to give a vaccine to three hundred million people, one in a thousand would be 300,000 people who are, who are adversely affected. So it's a great analogy. That's an absolutely great analogy. And I think that that frames it very well. Um, that's exactly what what happened is they they weren't they didn't have the power to see that that safety signal with those small numbers like that. that that's a great analogy. Right. It's It's almost like willful, intentional indifference to the safety issue that they would allow that kind of a study design. They, they, they can't say, we just didn't realize because this is their expertise that's being called into question. So it had to be an intentional act. Yeah, and I, and I, I like to say you, you can't find what you don't look for. And, and if you're going to have a cohort that small, you're certainly not going to find those adverse signals. So I, yeah, it, it sounds, sounds like a willful neglect in a way. Right. No, I, I agree. So that's, you know, another one of the things that we don't know after almost four years of the virus and vaccine, things that we don't know that we should have known by this point, that if if it had taken four years to develop a real vaccine, we would know all this stuff already. We would have good information, maybe not completely definitive information, but we'd have good information about how a vaccine performed after four years or three years in the field. And the fact that we don't have this was because it was intentionally not studied. All of the things we need to know. And, and in addition to that, uh, ignoring the history of development of SARS-CoV-1 and MERS vaccines, uh, those those never uh, came to market because of the challenges that were experienced in animal trials. And there was a paper in 2005 showing uh, there were severe immune responses, autoimmune responses, when one chose to use the full spike protein of the original SARS-CoV-1 back when those vaccines were being developed. And those were the more traditional protein vaccines, but still the way that that spike protein from this family of viruses behaves, you know, we, we had a good historical construct that using a full length spike protein from any coronavirus was not gonna be a good idea from the outset. You know, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's hard to be in the mind frame of what the developers were thinking as to using the spike protein, as opposed to any of the other two dozen or whatever proteins on the surface of the virus that would also generate antibodies and immune reactions. 
Yeah, I think it, it was just the accessibility of the spike being on the surface. But yeah, they could have done envelope, they could have done membrane proteins, they could have done nucleocapsid proteins. And those tend to be more conserved within um, coronavirus families anyway. The spike protein tends to mutate more than those other uh, proteins do in terms of additions and deletions. So uh, this this was a, a gamble and it was a bad gamble in terms of picking the, the wrong protein. Uh, on which to base these injections. I, I Perhaps it, they would have had to give more adjuvant or something in order to, be, because the other antigens are smaller, probably smaller than the spike protein. So it's interesting. Pretty- there were hearings in Congress even um, in March of 20, and this issue was brought up. And in nature uh, that summer, as this warp speed process was happening, uh, in nature, they said, hey, we should maybe look at only doing the receptor binding domain, just just the end end of that spike. Um, and because of this historical problem with the uh, previous coronavirus vaccines. So they said it would be probably more prudent. Uh, there would be less risk for what we call antibody dependent enhancement down the road, etc. And yet, after all those deliberations, they went ahead and did the full sequence spike protein. And and it didn't make scientific sense when they knew the risk going into it. Well, I agree. Uh, there have been so many unexplained and not rational and not optimal decisions made in this. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to understand what were they thinking, so to speak, as to why they made those decisions. Well, we're at a point where we could take a break. So why don't we take a break? And everybody stay tuned and we'll be back shortly. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Ryan Cole. We were just talking about some of the irrationality of how the um, COVID mRNA vaccines were designed from using the spike protein as opposed to other components of the virus. 
Something that I mentioned before was that there have been very unsettling reports of strange and aggressive kinds of cancers that have been seen in the last year or two, maybe. And this was a I was asked early on before this question of what's been labeled turbo cancer. Um, I was asked a couple of years ago, if cancer were to be an adverse event from this vaccine, how would it be manifest? How would we tell what would we see? And I said at that time that the first thing that one would expect to see are the cancers that have the shortest latency, which are the leukemias and lymphomas, the blood cancers, and maybe cancers that already exist but are in remission that get pulled out of remission, like breast cancer in women in their 60s, say, or something like that, and maybe other cancers that are already there but not recognized, not, not diagnosed, that come to diagnosis faster because of something that the vaccine could do. And then nothing happened for a year or a year and a half. And, and then suddenly we started seeing cancers. And at first I started hearing reports of colon cancers and um, other kinds of cancers that were not these blood cancers. But then more recently, we started hearing now two to three years after the vaccines got rolled out, leukemias and lymphomas and breast cancers coming out of remission. Uh, kind of exactly what I predicted, uh, you know, early on. Now, you know that one of the things that Sir Austin Bradford Hill says in his 1965 essay about how you take an association and compile evidence to determine whether an association is a causal association involves what's called the temporal latency, meaning that a, a, a pathway, uh, uh, that something occurs has to occur over time. And, and if it's something that you know how long it takes, when you see that amount of time occurring, then that adds credence, adds evidence to the believability that there's a causal relationship going on. So if you see short latency cancers to be the first ones that, that come out of this new exposure to the vaccine, then that is consistent with what we know about the short latency of two to three years on average of these blood cancers. So, you know, uh, it's it, we we don't yet have quantitative numbers, to my knowledge, about these things, but it is still beginning to be a bit unsettling for me and something that I've been following. And I know you've been seeing lots of, of these cases that came to your practice, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. And, that, and that's at first it was just recognizing patterns. So. I've been looking through a microscope for 26 years now, about 500,000 patients diagnosed. And so year to year, I, I expect, you know, certain types of cancers and certain age groups. And and one just has the gestalt of, of what one sees on a daily basis. And so it was unusual to me at, at first, when we were in 2020, I, I noticed certain blood patterns in the laboratory. There was some immune suppression during infection and whatnot. So that, you know, that's expected with any certain you know, types of viral infections. That, that was not too surprising. But then some of, some of those markers stayed suppressed in some of these patients. And then when the shots rolled out, there's uh, my, my subspecialty is uh, dermatopathology. So I'm a you know, Mayo Clinic trained anatomic and clinical pathologist. And my subspecialty uh, expertise is in dermatopathology. Um, I noticed 
after the rollout of the injections, an increase of uh, skin virus outbreaks, shingles. And then there was the one that I noticed, um, it's called molluscum contagiosum. And it's kind of a little white volcano bump that usually you see on little kiddos. It's a parapox virus and, and one develops an immunity to that, a T-cell immunity. And once one's into their teens, you rarely, rarely see that bump again. And after the rollout of the shots, I noticed uh, per you know age decile, I was see, starting to see molluscum in 80-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 50-year-olds, as they kept on rolling these down by age groups, which was really surprising. And I, I'm talking many, 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 many folds more than I would ever see in any of those age groups. And so that indicated to me, okay, we have an immune memory, immune suppression problem. And then uh, the amount of shingles was pretty much doubled from what I would usually see. And then several months after the rollout of the shots, I started seeing uh, uterine cancers at rates I hadn't seen before. And, you know, usually I'd see maybe one a month or something to that effect and all of a sudden i was seeing five a month so a five-fold increase in in uterine cancers and this wasn't until uh until again after the rollout and then melanomas in young patients that was the the other thing you know i'll look at a melanoma under a microscope and we have all sorts of different staging criteria on how to grade the tumors and whatnot but one thing that we we do with all melanomas is we we count how many dividing cells there are under the microscope per what we call high power field that we're looking through and an aggressive melanoma may have four or five mitotic figures in a high power field i was seeing melanomas in 30 and 40 year olds that had 10 or 20 uh, mitotic uh, figures per high power field so the behavior the appearance of these tumors was surprising and and again i was seeing cancers in age groups that i wasn't used to seeing and that was the other surprising thing because one argument you know that we hear is well people miss their screenings during the lockdowns and whatnot. And I think that's a valid argument to a degree. However, seeing tumors in at, at unexpected rates in the age groups that generally don't go in for cancer screenings because one doesn't expect cancers in those age cohorts, that's what really surprised me. And then the data is starting to come out from certain databases. As, as you and I both know, it's hard to get our own uh, HHS, our own data here. But in other countries, we've been able to uh, grab some data sets. Ed Dowd has done a great job of doing this. Um, there's a, a anonymous guy that um, I follow called the Ethical Skeptic, and he's gone into uh, some of the different data sets and has graphed and mapped a lot of the data he's been able to get from the CDC Wonder data sets. And, and so that, that's what I noticed at first. And it, it normalized from about a five-fold increase down to about a two to three-fold increase about a year into it. But still, a two to three-fold increase above averages. And, and you know, I was seeing about 40,000 patients or 40,000 biopsies a year. So, you know, I was noticing those numbers. And, and then trying to understand all the mechanisms as to why was has been you know that's the million dollar question is is why and there there are a lot of reasons um 
One is the vials, not only the DNA could be causative as a contaminant because it can, if, if it parks itself into our, our genome up, upstream from a, a tumor promoter gene or a tumor suppressor gene, either way, that can activate pathways. And you're absolutely right. I've, I've, uh, I've uh, talked to a lot of oncologists as I've traveled the world the last couple of years. And at first they were seeing the hematologic uh, cancers, the leukemias, lymphomas. And now what I'm hearing from oncologists is they're starting to see um, a lot more solid tumor uh, well, cancer. Endometrial cancer has about a five to 10 year latency. Oh. It has some of the same risk factors as ovarian cancer, but because it generally causes abnormal bleeding post-menopause, the bleeding is a signal that something's going on and swimming get it worked up, whereas ovarian cancer has a 30 to 40 year latency because it's just vague abdominal discomfort. And so nobody ever works it up until it's highly advanced. So, but it's, but five to 10 years is not two years, you know, and yeah. those yeah. cancers were probably there already. Exactly. Some of the solid tumor ones, but those hematologic ones, we know, we know the spike protein, there was a, a, paper out of the Karolinska, unfortunately it got withdrawn and that there's a whole lot of controversy, 490 redacted pages as to why they were forced to withdraw the paper. It was a very good paper. But in that paper, they showed how the spike protein could get into uh, the lymphoid cells and basically interrupt uh, DNA repair mechanisms. And so that can lead to a lymphoid cancer very quickly. And it's just fascinating reading the history as, as to why they suppressed that paper. But that, that's one of the many mechanisms. The spike protein also um, persists in the body. The paper by Dr. Brogna that came out of Italy showing six months later the vaccinal spike circulating. We know the spike protein in and of itself will suppress our um, type 1 interferon production and interferon is a, a critical uh, chemical that our cells make to fight off cancers, to fight off infections. We also know that the spike protein, there was a really good study by Dr. Fossa that showed how uh, the Pfizer shots suppressed our, our T cell response, our innate immune system. And we have a lot of pattern receptors inside our cells. And these are, they're called toll receptors, like a toll road. And if those get shifted, then other infections can wake up. Uh, like herpes virus infections, Epstein-Barr virus, especially when a toll-like receptor seven and eight are suppressed. And that's, that's what Dr. Foss's paper showed. And then that was uh, corroborated in laboratory findings. So th there are also fragmented um, RNAs within these vials, not just the contaminating DNA. And the European Medicine Agency knew about this early on. Uh, the vials that they they tested for purity were only 40 to 50% pure. And the same thing happened uh, with the Therapeutics Good um, Agency in Australia. They also knew that there was a lot of fragmented RNA. And if one does a deep dive into the literature, uh, micro RNAs or fragmented RNAs are also a known carcinogen. So there, there are so many different factors, suppression of interferon, uh, fragmented RNAs, contaminating DNAs, uh, the spike protein in silico studies will bind to that same P53 tumor suppressor family. It will also bind to the breast cancer and ovarian cancer BRCA genes. 
So there, there are many, many different mechanisms and reasons as to why a lot of these pathways could have been triggered in patients that you know, wouldn't be expected to have cancers. And I, I, I want to, you know, share with the audience, I don't want everybody to be afraid and panicked. Uh, the, you know, this isn't, it, it's not happening to everyone. Uh, the good news is about a third of the vials, it almost appears to have had no effect at all. There was a good study out of Denmark and they just confirmed the data, uh, Schmeling and colleagues. You're not going to attend to each of them as much. They're going to attend to each other more. So Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, Jordan Peterson just popped on my phone here. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast earlier. I was trying to figure out what that noise was. Um, no, Schmeling and colleagues, they looked at the data sets out of Denmark and about a third of the vials or a third of individuals that got, that got a shot didn't even have a sore arm. About two thirds had a, a moderate reaction. It was about four to five percent that had severe reactions. So, but to your point about the bridge earlier, when you consider the billions of doses that have been given, even though these signals to some people may be small, if you're the individual experiencing the adverse effect or an unexpected cancer, well, yeah, that's statistically significant if you're that individual. That's right. I mean, I, I think that there's a difference in giving a hazardous uh, treatment, drug, vaccine, whatever it is, to the general population versus giving it to people who have some condition that puts them at risk to start with. If you have cancer and you want a treatment, you're going to take a treatment that might even have a mortality risk of 30% if you think that it's got uh, you know, uh, a beneficial effect that's that large or larger. You, you know, that's a trade-off you have to face in a life-threatening condition. But if you're basically a healthy person in a general population, you're not going to take anything that has anything more than a very trivial risk at all, or or maybe you just wouldn't even take it because there's no need to. It's the 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 risk of not taking it was so low for most people in the population, and we were grossly mis misinformed about the magnitude of, of mortality from the virus in the first few months of the pandemic to let people think that it was two or three percent of infected people would die from the pandemic when it was more than tenfold less than that. That what that fact of propaganda is mode what put fear into everybody to make everybody think that they had to go and do something aggressive to protect themselves from getting infected and therefore a vaccine that had more than a trivial amount of risk as these vaccines have turned out to have was still taken by the great majority of people either by choice or being forced by mandates to do so. And that that's that is, that's a manipulation. It's an unconscionable manipulation and fraud on the part of the health authorities in the United States and elsewhere. I agree. And I think uh, another switcheroo that happened was usurping the word vaccine. If one goes into Moderna's filings with the Security and Exchange Commission, uh, it's registered as a gene therapy. Well, yeah. I have no problem calling that a, a vaccine, even though it's not a traditional vaccine. But my my issue is that if you call it a vaccine, does that mean you don't have to do certain kinds of testing that you would have to do if it were a gene therapy product? And the answer right. to that, at first I thought, was yes, if it's gene therapy, then you have to test it for genotoxicity, for, for mutational uh, excess, you can, carcinogenesis, all that stuff. And then I realized, of course, that all that was out the window because this wasn't a vaccine at all, and it wasn't a gene therapy product at all. It was a countermeasure, and countermeasures don't have to be tested for anything. 
Correct. Correct. They could have given people anything they wanted, actually, and and just called it a countermeasure. And because because they thought it was RNA, uh, they if you look at Pfizer's uh, own filings, they say we didn't test these for mutation. We didn't test these for oncogenicity. If you look at Comirnaty, same thing. They didn't test them. Oh, RNA is not expected to have that side effect, so we didn't test for that. And then Moderna, you read their papers. Uh, some of their original patents, they said, well, DNA in a product uh, certainly increases the risk of insertional mutagenesis and carries a risk of oncogenesis. So in some of Moderna's own patent filings, historically, they knew contaminating DNA could have been a risk. And we know that there's contaminating DNA and none of these companies or parties tested for these things. So nobody got informed consent. And to your point, yeah, most of the population wasn't at high risk for this virus. And yet we use this countermeasure, as you mentioned, that you know, we're, we're seeing more adverse effects from these shots than all other um, vaccines combined historically. At, at, astounding numbers and it's still a lot of a lot of people are being gaslit and you'll talk to your doctor and they'll say well it's anything but that couldn't have been the shot they're safe and effective and they they carry on with the narrative and the mantra but you know from a laboratory point of view and now that we're getting these statistics uh things things aren't looking good for um not only these companies and and the the fraud that they kind of uh, apparently got away with but it's not looking good for a lot of patients. Uh, the the one data set that uh, recently came out um, of the Office of National Statistics in the UK is the 15 to 44 cancer death uh, data sets. And, uh, and the uptake in the UK of the shots was very high. And again, correlation is not causation. I know that. But you know, we in that young age group, uh, we have a 28% increase in fatal breast cancers, 70% rise in uh, pancreatic cancer deaths, 120% increase in fatal melanoma deaths in young men, 36% uh, increase in brain cancer, <clears throat> um, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, the, the, the numbers are off the charts compared to what we would expect. And again a countermeasure without ever being tested for these risks i think was a very irresponsible move on multiple governments parts around the world well i agree well we've gotten to another point where we have to take a commercial break so we'll be right back everybody please stay tuned america out loud news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Ryan Cole. We were just talking about the potential cancer risks from the vaccines. Now, one of the things I want to say is that these risks are small, and we and the UK data are still, I would put in the tentative category as far as being caused by the vaccines versus COVID versus the vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> that that we the 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 cases are occurring they're not affecting large numbers of people but the the cases themselves seem to be more aggressive which is freaking doctors out the doctors who see them as much as it's freaking the patients out who get these things but it shouldn't be freaking out the population because the numbers still are not that large as far as i can tell we don't have good quantitative estimates of the amount of cancers the american cancer society in the us each year puts out a guide to cancer and, and extrapolates what all the different cancer sites are doing. And I so I looked in that and then I realized in the fine print that it only has the actual numbers from 2020 and extrapolates forward. And so there's nothing to be said uh, from, from those data. All we can really know now is all-cause mortality. And we have some evidence from the New Zealand data, as controversial as that might be at the moment, the Medicare data that Steve Kirsch has also looked at that there is, and and the insurance company data that Ed Dowd looked at some time ago, that there is excess mortality in working age people who should not be having this excess mortality, all-cause mortality. And this is something that requires continued vigilance over to understand what this is about. But one has to realize that an asteroid did not hit the earth and make particles that everybody's breathing that <laughs> that the most cataclysmic event of the last four years is that that's invasive in in a an immune potentially damaging way is the vaccine the the, the genetic vaccines that even covid itself as annoying, obnoxious, and originally in the first year or so, potentially um, hospitalizing or or more mortal as, as it might have been, does, did not create the, path, the immune pathological circumstances to the same intensity that the vaccine does. And I, and I think that's because the immune system is used to dealing with viruses. It's used to dealing with coronaviruses. Colds are coronaviruses. We have a whole history of being exposed to coronaviruses since childhood through our entire existence as people, as humans. And so our immune systems know how to deal with that. 
they're not perfect. They fight them off. I mean, that's why we have all the cytokine driven symptoms, you know, the sore throat, the fever, the headache, the muscle aches, the tiredness. That's that's not coming from a virus. That's coming from the body's response to the virus. Correct. But when you but when you inject, you know, as large or larger numbers of spike particles that are self-reproducing and manufacturing in the body, you may very well exceed the number of spike particles at, compared to viruses that are self-reproducing from the natural infection. And so it's very difficult to, and and we don't know how, and, and the natural infection, the viruses stick around somewhere on the order of five to seven days, 10 days at the latest. Whereas, you know, this is going to be controversial, but probably the vaccine spike protein stay around, can stay around longer because yeah, it's and made that- not to be degraded. Absolutely correct. And and that uh, gene sequence from the, the synthetic RNA has a methylated pseudouridine and, and that basically evades our immune response. It persists longer. Dr. Roltgen and her colleagues at Stanford, they, they did a lymph node biopsy series of uh, patients who had received the shots. And some of these patients still had the persistent injection RNA 60 days after their injection and RNA. I'm everybody listening is making RNA right now in their body. You know, making muscle, making bone, making proteins for cell processes, and those signals last for a few minutes to a few hours, depending on what your body needs. And then those, it, like Mission Impossible, this message will self-destruct. So that uh, those natural mRNAs self-destruct, but this synthetic RNA is persisting. And I was in Parliament in London the other day, and I was showing a. Uh, case series um, in one of those, one can see 30 days later, persistent synthetic mRNA in cardiac tissue. And we know the Nakahara study that came out of Japan showed six months later, individuals had abnormal PET scans uh, in the vaccinated cohort. And, And so there were still abnormal cardiac findings in a large cohort of patients six months later. And and the Brogna paper that I mentioned earlier, showing the synthetic spike protein sticking around for six, at least six months. And all of these are at least because that's when they ended the study so they could go to publication. So we don't know for how much longer, uh, if I look at the Dr. Burkhart uh, autopsy series, some of these patients had persistent spike protein in their organs uh, four months um, after their last shot when they when they passed away. So, yeah, it's the persistence of this unusual synthetic gene sequence and this unusual protein that it makes that it's very persistent. But again, to your point, I don't want everybody to panic. It's not everybody, but we, we don't have a perfect test yet to see who has uh, circulating spike protein. Uh, there's there's a lot of different methodologies one can do, and I've been looking at a couple of those. It's hard to hard to do the the most sensitive one on a, a commercial scale. In in academic settings, uh, it can be done by mass spec proteomics and other other modalities. But yeah, to your point, we 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 have a persistent protein that triggers all sorts of bad immune responses, and that's why I think we're seeing. Uh, excess deaths. So I think that you said two things that struck me. One is I've seen studies about circulating spike protein that show that it disappears by and large within a week for most, if not everybody that was in the study that was measured. 
But that says nothing about spike protein that's circulated and gotten into tissues that can be around for forever, as you point out. And, and your biopsy studies and autopsy studies that look at stains for the spike protein and can show it in, in the microscope slide stains show that the spike protein is still there. Means that it's staying around in organs, but not really leaching out into the bloodstream to be measured in the blood. And, you know, spike protein does at least two bad things. One is that it gets into tissues and, and does some aberrant pathological kinds of effects, damaging those tissues. The other is it circulates and sticks to the inside of blood vessels. And th that damages the inside of the blood vessels in, in two ways. One is it can create inflammation because immune cells also circulate. They see this foreign antigen of the spike protein sitting on the blood vessel. And so they attack the blood vessel wall, create uh, an immune response, an inflammation response, which then forms a, a focus for cholesterol uh, to build up and to, to occlude these arteries, which which can do that. At the same time, the inflammation can actually damage the mechanical property of the arterial wall and lead to our, the arterial rupture in places like the aorta, you know, and, and other things that normally would be mechanically intact, but the spike protein has initiated a process that, that leads to potential damage. So there's all these, what we call pleiotropic mechanisms, different mechanisms for different organs in different places that the spike protein can do. And it's like it's created dozens and dozens of, of unique and different diseases, depending on where it lands. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. And that's the fact that since this is a foreign protein, wherever it lands or whatever cells are expressing it, it then becomes a, those cells become a target of our own immune system to attack. And so my, my concern isn't just this platform for COVID, but the construct that countries are pushing forward and multiple companies have dozens, if not hundreds of other pathogens in the pipeline to use the same lipid nanoparticle gene sequence technology as a vaccine. And what we've seen from this, I mean, to me, you know, yes, the spike protein is very toxic to, you know, multiple organs, certainly. But what do we know about influenza virus or RSV when our cells start to make a synthetic RSV uh, protein or a synthetic influenza protein and that lipid nanoparticle carries it any and everywhere in the human body? We don't we don't have long term safety signals for this platform technology yet these these technologies are being fast-tracked and moved forward for other things so i think it's it's a great point you bring up that yeah our body's attacking wherever the spike is but that same process it's what we call antibody dependent cellular cytotoxicity and there's a, a good paper out of germany on that uh in 20 i think it was 22 but but that's uh that's my concern is it's we need to scientifically be prudent and not be pushing forward a platform technology with no long-term safety data. Um, that's right. I, I agree completely. And, you know, it, it's interesting that respiratory viruses attack in the nasopharynx, in the lining of the nose and the sinuses, and maybe get into the lungs. Um, they don't go all over the body. The spike Correct. protein goes all over the body. So when we fight off 
respiratory infections, our immune system is working in the lungs, working in the nose, you know, and those are its its primary places. I suppose it could still get into the bloodstream, but it's not like it's primarily in the in the bloodstream. the The injected vaccine was we were told was not supposed to be in the bloodstream. It was supposed to be in the muscle and the draining lymph node. But we know that a substantial fraction of people it does get into the bloodstream one way or another and does travel around. Sure, those aren't you know it's not ten percent of the dose delivered. It's it's fractions of one percent. But still, fractions of 1% is still hundreds of thousands uh, of these lipid nanoparticles, and you know, which and, and then once And then once they land in the cell and take over the cell's machinery and whatever organ they land in, we, we also don't have a dose dependency in terms of, you know, some patients may be making a ton of spike protein and others may make very little, but that lipid nanoparticle landing say in ovarian tissue where we know they concentrate or in the bone marrow um, changing pathways. We, we don't know which individuals are going to be high producers. Uh, others may be low producers of the protein. We just, we, there, there's basically no, no quantification uh, study to show who was making a lot and who wasn't. Well, you know, there's lots in, in medicine that we don't know. There's lots of randomness of who gets affected by what and even in our humanity that defines each of us as unique individuals our hla antigens that are so complicated and mixed up that people this is why one when one does um bone marrow transplantation or organ transplantation in order to try to minimize rejection one has to match up all of these different antigen systems and it's very very messy and very very complicated and and for me very very difficult to understand <laughs> about all of the, these these different um molecular antigens and and the the randomness with which nature and the genetics mixes and matches all these of these different parts to get the antigens that we actually display on the surfaces of our cells and that's, yeah. that's why, you know, identical twins are identical, but nobody else is identical. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a quote I like um, by Richard Feynman. And let me see if I can find it here. But, but he basically, uh, well, keep talking, I'll find the quote, because, because it was, it was, it was really interesting that, um, this whole construct that we could develop something so quickly and give it to everybody and expect everyone to react the same way and that we would accomplish the same goal and and it was just going to be fine but i found the quote for a successful technology reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled and what we were trying to do with this process was trying to fool nature uh, and we we didn't have those long-term studies and i i think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg for some unfortunate individuals who are going to have chronicity of these problems and i wanted to uh, real quick go back to the cancer construct the the interesting thing as well because of the immune system modulation the oncologists i've been speaking with say that the traditional therapies that they've used and and they know how to treat certain types of cancers with certain treatments and whatnot, but these cancers aren't responding uh, the way the oncologists expect. I was speaking to a very prominent oncologist in Texas a few weeks ago, and 
he said, yeah, I, I, usually this type of cancer, that type of cancer, I can give the patient this and they respond and I know how much more time they're going to have. And, and these tumors, again, because of all these different things that you've described and we've gone over, the immune system is responding in a different way than normal. So, you know, you have to realize that all, almost all human cells want to reproduce. The whole idea of how we get here is proliferation. The reason that they stop is because we have signals in adults telling them you've done enough, now the organ is the final good adult size and you can stop reproducing. But that doesn't mean the cells don't still want to reproduce. And if something unlocks the gate of that reproduction, then the cells start reproducing ad lib, gobbling up energy resources, trying to, you know, build new blood vessels to feed them and all this stuff, which is what cancer is about. And uh, so you have to protect the regulatory elements of, of our genes to keep this the, the reproductions from being unlocked. And what I think is happening is not only that the cancers are occurring, by unlocking some protective mechanism that allows the re cell reproduction, but allowing multiple of those, that the cancers are going way more haywire than they usually do. Once the cell goes haywire and, and the genetic machinery stops, stops working properly, then more and more of the cell itself goes haywire. And if it's reproducing and it's still successfully reproducing and it's going more and more haywire, it can reproduce faster. And th that's kind of my model of why one is seeing turbo cancers in in the idea that you have multiple insults to the genetic integrity of the cells that are created because of interference in the factors that control those cells and keep them from reproducing in adults and then on top of that the secondary hit of having uh the innate immune response that's responsible or killer cells that will usually go in and try to kill those atypical cells those are also acting in a unusual fashion or not responding the way they should so now you have that genetic hit you have that those mechanisms you just described compounded by the fact that the immune cells that normally would go in and gobble up the cancer uh, aren't responding in the way that they normally should as well that that's all true and and uh astonishingly nobody ever seems to have thought about this and the theoretical reasons for this this is i'll just kind of finish with this which is that in science there's a difference between can and does that we entertain theoretical models of all the different possible ways that nature and biology and whatever can work so we're out of time for today and i hope everybody's enjoyed the discussion and if you have questions for me please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse so ryan thanks for some really great discussions i've enjoyed it thanks everybody for listening and please come back next week